Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. We've been trying to do some shows on books and, and writers with a female and feminist perspective in honor of International Women's Day last week. Um, a few days ago, we did a show with the American journalist Patty McCracken on a group of 20th century Hungarian women who poisoned 160 men. Uh, her book, The Angel Makers, Arsenic and Midwife, and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murdering is, is an amazing story of a group of uh, female Hungarian I won't call them peasants, people living in, in a village near Budapest who murdered their husbands and sons and fathers. It's an astonishing story. And to maybe balance things up, because it's a rather dark history, uh, earlier this morning I, I did a show with my friend, uh, Bay Area-based friend, uh, author, writer, artist Tiffany Schlein on uh, trees and feminism. Today we are broadening this uh we have a conversation with a new book out in the u.s uh by my author uh, by my guest uh, christian lush the last russian doll the uh, the book is already out in the uk it's called the porcelain doll um uh, but it's doing very well and uh, it's already many foreign rights are sold and Kristen is joining us from just outside seattle Kristen. um I don't want to put you in a box uh, or a doll. Um, oh is this a, a, a feminist book or is that a oversimplification, vulgarization of your novel? This is a book that stars two women. And that was, that was always my intention, that their narratives would intersect. And I wouldn't call it a feminist novel. That's not the description that I would give it. But I would hope that if you read it, you get a sense of their strength and their power. And if that is someone's takeaway, that would be amazing. Um, it's a book about two Russian women, and it's a sweeping narrative about Russian history. And there is no more sweeping uh, country when it comes to its history than Russia, both in a tragic and inspirational tale. I don't want to give away everything about the book, Kristen, because we want everyone to read it, but perhaps you might outline the book. Tell us about these two women at the heart of the book. Sure. So it is a family saga and a love story, and it spans three generations of Russian women. And it kind of centers on two women. One is Rosie in 1991 at you know, a very pivotal point in, in 20th century Russian history. It's just before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And she returns, she's in England, and she returns to her homeland, to Moscow, to solve the mystery of her family's murders that occurred many years ago. And another narrative, the other central female character is Tanya, and she lives in pre-revolutionary Russia, so just before the end of the imperial regime. And I chose these two points on purpose, because I felt like they kind of bookended, you know, obviously this era of the Soviet Union, but also they mirror each other a great deal in terms of the sense of optimism that people had, the sense that there was going to be this momentous change. And obviously there was, even if not everything that people hoped for came to pass. And so those are the two women at the center of the novel. 
the real life Christian uh, Lush studied uh, Slavonic studies at the University of Cambridge. I know you grew up in Seattle and then you went to live for a while in, in the UK and, and you studied at, at Cambridge University. Um, in terms of your interpretation of Russian history, is it, Dr. Shivago, is it classically tragic in terms of your interpretation of the revolution or have you tried to steer clear of a, a, a politicized interpretation of the revolution itself? Well, as a former academic, I would find it very difficult to use a word like tragic to describe it. I think that's that's very loaded and it's it's so open to interpretation in many ways. I mean, there are obviously very heartbreaking things happened over the course of the, the history that, that, that occurred, the many events, the violence, the persecutions, the repressions. There's there's a lot there that is that is utterly abhorrent and, and very difficult to study. Um, but you know, when you're when you're looking at it from an academic perspective, you don't want to say that this caused this, or that you know, the, you don't want to use any definitive terms about it. You kind of look at the many many factors that that went into it, and you also, I think, when I was studying, at least, I like to think about the many poss many things that could have been. You know, it seems inevitable everything that happened. Now, when we look back at it, we think, okay, well, that was that was obviously going to happen. You know, those those things were always going to be the case. But if you if you if you really sink yourself into the history you see it could have turned out so differently that of course has been an, an age-old preoccupation of, of historians of russia the what if what if lenin hadn't managed to get back to st petersburg what if the provisional government had lasted what for you is the most interesting what if uh, surrounding the russian revolution oh that's that's a really tough question to answer I think for me, you know, looking at the the baby steps that kind of led to the ultimate, the Bolshevik Revolution in October 1917, for me, it's it's a question of thinking about, you know, instead of instead of contemplating it as kind of this instantaneous, you know, dramatic turn of events, it's it's thinking about all the different things that that led to it in terms of the you know, what if what if serfdom had not been abolished the previous century? You know, what if what if the Tsarina had not been so unpopular for a number of reasons? What if World War One had not broken out? It's it's very difficult for me to to pinpoint one one single thing, but I think that's that's a question I would I would really kind of think about myself and, and hopefully come up with I don't know, a different answer, several answers. Again, I don't know. But I can tell that, that you know something about it, for sure. Like the, the provisional government, obviously, that's a very interesting um, aspect and an interesting time in 1917 that not many people know very much about. Well, of course, uh, and, and I'm sure, or I hope many of our listeners will know that there were two Russian revolutions in 1917, the so-called liberal democratic one that resulted in the provisional government of a man called Kerensky and then the Leninist coup d'etat revolution, however you want to describe it. Do you think, uh, Kristen, that, and, and, and you obviously know Russian history inside out, you've written your novel, you've studied it. Um, was the Russian revolution, particularly in the first revolution, was it an opportunity, and I use this word carefully, maybe you'll correct me on it as well, was it Russia's opportunity to normalize its history? Oh my goodness, what a question. Um, first of all, I want to correct the record. I don't consider myself an expert on Russian history. I'm definitely someone who's had 
a lifelong fascination with that country stemming from a very young age. I'm someone who's, you know, I've studied the language and the culture and the history and the politics, but I'm definitely not an expert. And nothing proved that to me better than than studying, returning to the Russian Revolution, studying that period again, when I approached it from the perspective of wanting to write a historical novel in the sense that I, you know, I, I went back and I studied the phenomenon and I had an idea of kind of the, the sequence of events, what occurred one after the other. But I realized as, a, as I was writing this book that while I had this bird's eye view of what was going on in terms of the day-to-day experience of the people, I actually knew relatively little. There were there were several details that just, you know, completely eluded me, and I really had to dig deep to to recreate that that world in a way that that could make it authentic. Now, to return to your question as to whether this was an opportunity for for Russia to to normalize, I mean, I would say that this was obviously. It, it seems as when we look back at it that that things were coming to a head that that maybe Russia had some catching up to do in a sense and that it you know it this was one way of kind of breaching the gap in a way and it was obviously a very very um, unfortunate and dramatic and required several years of, of war for that for that transition to to occur but I, it was, you know, it was very, very unique set of circumstances. Do you have any particular heroes? I mean, we're, we're going to talk about heroines, of course, that's the heart of your book. But the participants, the actors in this great moment, this infamous moment in, in world history, not just Russian history. I have to admit, I have a an affection for Lenin, for his focus, for his... Uh, his obsession with power and his success in seizing power, a remarkable moment, a huge state, a small group of dedicated characters seizing power. Maybe the results weren't so great, but for me, Lenin is still a a remarkable historical figure. Are are, are there characters around the revolution that, 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 that have inspired you or perhaps horrified you? That's, that's a really interesting question. Just on the, on the subject of Lenin, I, I completely agree. I think a lot of people don't realize that the Bolsheviks were the minority party or even that there were many kind of parties in the revolutionary underground vying for attention, you know, vying for prominence and that it was it was not definitely not a given for a very long time that the Bolsheviks of all these various parties who had various agendas and the Bolsheviks happened to be, you know, amongst the most extreme of those, but that they would, that they would be able to, to seize power in a way. And, you know, Lenin is absolutely a very fascinating figure. Um, You mentioned Kerensky and, you know, kind of his, his, his role, obviously in the provisional government Um, prior to Kerensky's takeover. So, so we have the February revolution during which the, the czar abdicated and the kind of setting up of the provisional government involving a lot of imperial ministers and people who had been who had been involved in the in the prior regime, which is probably one reason why that really did not satisfy a lot of a lot of people in the revolution underground, a lot of people who had expected a more significant change. Um, but before Kerensky, there was a figure, a prince, who who ran the provisional government in kind of the first half. We're talking about between February and October. Obviously, this is by the 
the old calendar. So by our calendar, it would be March to November. And kind of in the first half of that period, there was a prince and he he came from country gentry um, and he actually came from the province of Tula, which is where I set uh, in, in my novel. I, I had Tanya's family, one of the main characters, her family is from Tula. Her family is a kind of provincial gentry in the same way. That, where is, uh, for, we don't have a map, uh, unfortunately, right. Christian, it's, where is Tula? It's just south of Moscow. So it's just the presence, uh, the province, excuse me, south of Moscow province. So, and um, this guy was really, really, really fascinating. Um, he, he had a lot of liberal ideas. Mm. And what I was think, his name? Uh, Lvov, I think, L-V-O-V, yes, I think. Mm. Um, Prince, Prince Lvov, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, you know, these are, <laughs> I'm not terribly good with names, but I'm, I'm thinking L-V, yes. Um, but yeah, I would actually advise anyone who is interested in this topic, who is interested in the Russian Revolution, to look him up, to read about him. He should appear in most in most history books. I would I would assume of most in depth looks at the Russian Revolution because he was he was really interesting. I mean, he was kind of a mild mannered figure, and as we can see, for those times, being mild mannered was unfortunately not the biggest draw for, for people. And there were, there were perhaps more compelling voices like Lenin, and it was difficult at times to be heard over those. But, you know, there were a lot of interesting figures involved in the Russian. Yeah, there certainly were. And in case I get accused of being a Leninist, uh, another figure <laughs> for me who was fascinating is a man called uh, Struva, who uh, Richard Pipes, the Harvard uh, historian, wrote a uh, a two-volume uh, history of one, I think, about him being a conservative and one a liberal. And in fact, the books inspired me so much, I once visited Strew's uh, grave in, in Paris. The, 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 the whole history is littered with, as you say, what-ifs. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why it's such a rich history is because there have been so many great books about it. In terms of your research for your last Russian doll novel, were there particular histories written either by Russians or by uh, Americans or, or British historians that you found particularly compelling? Yeah, definitely. Um, so for each period of kind of Russian history that the book covers, I looked to two types of texts. So I wanted to get kind of an overview and familiarize myself once more with you know, the main timeline of events, the major political figures, kind of the broader forces at work. And for that, I would use the big names like for, like Richard Pipes, like you mentioned, um, like Orlando Figes, kind of the really, and for, mm. for the Stalinist period, uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick comes to mind. I mean, these are- All British you know, historians. As well, Pipes well I, I admit like there's- in, uh, Yeah, in fact, uh, Sheila are- Go on, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say there might be a slight bias just because I did my postgraduate work in Slavonic studies at mm. Cambridge. And so I was kind of surrounded by, by British historians and, and was probably influenced there. Um, so as I was saying, right, so I would, I would look to them for kind of the, the, the overarching view of, of what was happening in society and you know a lot of a lot of those those books are really really brilliant i mean they can be very intimidating to look at they're often tomes of like although sheila's written some some smaller ones um but 
And then I, I really found that for writing historical fiction and, and also for academia, but in a very different way, um, going to, to primary sources and, and firsthand accounts and diaries, memoirs, uh, this is where you really get the kind of detail and where you really feel immersed in, in the world that, you, that ultimately you are going to have to bring to life as the author. And it's, it's a very interesting task for sure. Um, did you, I assume you're pretty fluent in terms of your reading of R Russian. What's your feeling, um, Kristen, on this debate now amongst novelists and academics about whether one has the right, we did a show about this in association with the Philip Roth Festival last week with another American novelist, about whether one has the right to uh, say for you to establish the voice of a couple of Russian women, given that you're not actually Russian. Yes, I've definitely heard this debated and I'm aware of, you know, many people having weighed in on it on both sides. I think, you know, I, I can't answer definitively. I can't pretend to, to be the one who knows, you know, or who can possibly decide who has the right to tell what story. You, I assume you've chosen... I mean, you've decided that, uh, and I, I'm very sympathetic with you, that you, you're not Russian, but you have the right to write about two Russian, to, to write in the voice of two Russian women in the 20th century. Well, I personally take the position, and I completely understand if people dis disagree with me, and that's absolutely fine, but I, I do take the position that um, an, an author, a writer, can, can potentially, can hypothetically write about anything. And obviously you want to be true to the thing you are writing about. You don't want to do it carelessly. You don't want to do it frivolously, meaninglessly. You don't, you don't want to do it with a lack of you know, respect for the things that you are writing about. And if you are writing about people or if you are adopting certain voices, you should feel that sense of, of responsibility for, for sure. There, there's no question, um, or at least you know, that, is, that is my belief, I should say. That's my personal belief. Um, but in terms of people not being allowed to write about certain subjects, that's, that's not something that, that I think personally I would ever feel on board with. But it's, a really, it's been a really fascinating, at times perhaps, concerning debate to read about. The revolution, of course, announced itself in the voice not just of the international working class, both of Russia and of the world, but also in in the name of women. There were many young women, often very privileged, but some from the working class involved in the revolution. Oh, yes. Is the book The Last Russian Doll, is it political in the sense that the two women at the heart of your book, are they activists? Were they for or against the Bolshevists? Um, that's a great question. I would say no, they are, they are not. In fact, if you, if you look at Tanya in particular, who's the figure in pre-revolutionary Russia, and is the one who is very, very exposed to these ideas through her connection to Valentin, who is her love interest, who is an orator who belongs to the Bolshevik party, who embodies a lot of the ideals of the revolutionary underground that a lot of people had at that time about what kind of society could be established, about what kind of utopia was possible. I mean, I think Valentin himself is a bit of a naive character. He's a romantic 
he, he genuinely believes in this utopia and he has many personal reasons and perhaps his own history, his own backstory kind of lends itself to, to him wanting to believe in such things. But Tanya herself is very pragmatic. And we see that throughout the book when she's placed in certain situations that require her to make difficult decisions. And I would say that there are moments of moral ambiguity there when we think about the, the choices that she had to make. And these are very, very tough choices, obviously not choices that I have faced personally in my life. So this was a really interesting character to write about, but she's definitely more pragmatic. You know, she's determined to survive. She kind of finds sources of inner strength and she doesn't, she doesn't have politics or any of that in, in as her top priority. Now, Rosie in 1991 is obviously in a very, very different context, um, but it's again, a very pivotal, very significant moment and a moment that, you know, Rosie doesn't know it, but and we And Rosie's it. teaching or Rosie had uh, studied at Oxford University and then goes back to Russia. Yes, correct. She goes back to Russia. And I think she, you know, at the beginning of the novel, very much does not want to be part of what is happening in Russia. She doesn't want to have anything to do with, with her home country in a way, despite the fact that she's going back to it. But she's going back to it to close the book on it, to really kind of end her involvement with it and not have to think about it anymore and not have to dig deeper. And but what what does happen over the course of the novel? And I suppose, you know, that's that's a side effect of, of living in Moscow in, in 1991 is that she is obviously exposed to kind of the shifts that are that are going on in larger society. And I think that she does become perhaps a bit more political towards towards the end of the book. Is if you, I don't want to give too much away, but but, no, we but can't definitely give too her. much away. But <laughs> you're, you're tantalizing everyone. We want to make sure everyone ends up read, uh, buying and reading the book. Um, you talk about 1991, another what-if moment, Kristen, in some ways, like 1917, equally historic, perhaps in some ways, given what's been going on in, in Ukraine over the last year, even more pivotal. Um, do you see 1991 um, as, and I, this is my word, I know you're not maybe so keen on it, another tragic year like 1917 where Russia made the wrong choice I I yeah I'm sorry to <laughs> to disagree with you again here I I find it difficult to put it into terms of of right and wrong I you know I've I have a good friend actually here in Seattle who who is a Russianist and she was in 1991 she was writing uh, she's actually British and she was writing she was writing correspondence to a friend who was living in Moscow at that time and I've read their correspondence I've read their letters and you know it's it's really incredible kind of the the tension and the hope and the the just the heightened atmosphere of that time um I you know, as a as a scholar of, of post-Soviet Russia, I, I do personally, again, this is very personal, not speaking as a kind of academic or historian or even an author, but just as a person, I look back and I, I find it very difficult to think about in a way to grapple with because it does it does feel like there were kind of missed chances. It does feel like there was, you know, every time there is a void of some kind, a void of of power, a void of anything that, you know, something opens up, 
And you, you, you obviously your hope is that what will fill that void is, you know, something, something better that, than what came before, something fundamentally different than what came before. And it, I mean, it, it can be different and it was different, but we, we did find out obviously that different doesn't always mean a step in the right direction or a step in the direction that, that people might've hoped or that, you know, we might have foreseen at the time. Um, you know, my, my own studies in, in Slavonic studies, when I was a postgraduate, I was looking at the rise of civil society in, in Putin's Russia, particularly online, particularly on the internet. And at that time, this was 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, there was the Arab Spring, there was this sense that the internet is the answer to, uh, to oppression, to these sort of regimes, to dictators, to that kind of power. And, you know, looking back on it, I think to myself now that we, we believed in that, I believed in that very hard. And it, it, it feels naive, it feels innocent looking back on it, it feels like, you know, we thought there, this would be the this would be the moment. And I think people always think that this is going to be the moment when everything changes, this is going to be the moment that the whole thing overturns. And it's, you know, we are, we are, we are living that history. Um, and, you know, sometimes it is a moment of momentous change, but it's just not, not quite what you would have hoped for. Yeah, of course, in 1988-1989, Francis Fukuyama announced the end of history. Uh, Vladimir Putin has wanted, uh, I think, to reestablish a certain history, maybe not a Russian history, but a, a Soviet history. Um, is history reappearing in, in the Russia after 1991, Kristen? Is that the problem? Has Russia failed to escape history, its own history, its own rather turbulent, tragic history? Um, or is that the wrong way, again, of looking at it? Um, I'm, I'm not the person to say whether that is right or wrong in terms of a perspective. I would say that I don't see it as a failure to escape their history. I think, if anything, the, kind, the shadow of the history is perhaps not long enough in the sense that in Putin's Russia, a lot of that history is being is being rewritten. A lot of the kind of popu popular memory is being shaped um, for the people. For you know, as in terms of you know, how do you when we look back at um, Stalin, for example, how do we remember him? Do we remember him as you know the figure who oversaw the terror, the purges of the 1930s, or do we see him as the the war hero, the one who you know, won World War II for, for Russia and established it as this great power that, you know, was competing with the United States. So there's, you know, there's, there's varying ways to look at it. And it's hard to say, okay, well, this is right and this is wrong. But if you completely take away one of those perspectives and as, as is happening in, in Putin's Russia, you kind of elevate the figure of Joseph Stalin, for example, and try to turn him into exclusively a hero while, while at the same time trying to silence any discussion of, you know, different perspectives, that's the really problematic aspect. You know, there is this, this there is a lot to the history to be unpacked. And I, I do worry, well, I, I guess this is, again, a very personal thing for me, is the thought that the history that, that started to kind of be opened up in, you know, in the late 80s and in the 90s with the archives being opened, um, with people being able to, to kind of revisit that history and engage with that history, um, that that's kind of slowly being taken away again. 
Maybe it's a, a female history. Um, Stalin and Putin surrounded themselves with men. I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, The Death of Stalin. Uh, I did. A hilarious take on Stalin's death. But one of the striking things was that everyone associated with his little clique, his mafia, was were, were male. There's a certainly a, a very strong male quality to Soviet and post-Russian or certainly post-Soviet uh, Putin's history of Russia. Talking about the the Patty McCracken book on uh, the angel makers, uh, these Hungarians came back from World War One, and many men, they were all, many of them were alcoholics. They brutalized their women. Um, is there an alternative female history to Russia in the 20th century, which in a sense you're telling? There are some remarkably heroic female Russian figures who are well-known poets in particular. But are, are you presenting a, in your own way? I mean, obviously, this is a novel. It's not academic history, but you have an academic background. Are you presenting in a way an alternative or a parallel history? Yes, I wouldn't put it necessarily in terms of, of gender, but I do like to think that you know, it, it focuses more on kind of what the everyday experience was for people um, as opposed to kind of the higher level goings on of the government and the regime that, you know, you see the kind of trickle down effect of what was happening on a much larger scale and see the effect it has on, on one family in particular, you know, on, on one woman, on the figure of Tanya as she, as she kind of navigates these, these decades of, of Soviet history. But definitely you make an excellent point that um, there's, there's several female figures in, in Russian history that deserve more attention. And there were also a lot of female Bolsheviks. So they, <laughs> that is a very, very interesting part of the history as well. One of the... I guess the cliches one often hears about Russia, both in the Cold War, the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and even now, is this disconnect between the public face of the country of war, of brutality, and the warmth of the private sphere, uh, which is often a, a female sphere. Is is this something that comes out in your book? Um, definitely, it's a kind of female-centric novel. I'm I'm deliberately writing mostly from the female perspective. Um, but I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the focus. I think Tanya is perhaps, she's a very, she, you know, she has children. She's a very, very dedicated mother. And we see the lengths that she goes to in order pr to protect her children and the very, very almost impossible choices that she's, that she has to make. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call her maternal in a very kind of stereotypical way. So Perhaps that's that's not the right right way to think about it, but I mean, it's definitely an interesting question. Is there a soundtrack uh, to the book? I mean, obviously, it hasn't been made into a movie yet. When one thinks of Russian music, one thinks perhaps of the romantic drama of Tchaikovsky versus the quiet, tragic, ironic qualities of Shostakovich. What kind of soundtrack would you choose for your novel? Oh, goodness. Yes, those are all very, very great composers. Um, I will be honest here and say that while I was writing it, I listened mostly to Russian pop music. Oh, which good. I, <laughs> I, I really fancy for, for some reason. So, for example, there's a singer, um, Dima Balan, that I listen to quite a bit. Um, oh, gosh, if I if I prepared for this question, I could come up with an entire soundtrack. But 
on the subject of that, on the subject of music, there's a there's a song that appears in the book, kind of in the very early chapters when Rosie first um, travels to Moscow, and one of the other characters is is singing a song, and she listens, and the lyrics are given. And my brother is actually a kind of composer musician, and so I asked him to to write that song. So that song actually exists with a full melody and and everything, and he's recorded it, and it's pretty cool. Chris, then you've done very well. You've got a, you picked up a, a two book deal already on the back of the last Russian doll. Um, you've got a number of foreign editions coming out. I think uh, uh, 10, which is quite an achievement for a first time novelist. Getting a two book deal is also a huge deal. Do you think Thank in a you. way, I mean, obviously you're a writer of enormous talent and potential that goes without saying. Thank you. Do you think writing a novel about Russia, which is still really the home of 20th century fiction or one of the centers of 20th century fiction. Did that help you as a novelist? I mean, it's a fairly conventional narrative. It's not experimental. Is that fair? It's not for sure, which is actually, you know, for me, I write a lot of experimental fiction or a lot of experimental short fiction. Um, that that definitely kind of pushes the envelope in terms of form and 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 a lot of other elements um but it's you know it's it's meant to be a love story it's meant to be kind of an homage to some of the some of the russian novels that are that i loved as a child that perhaps are almost you know cliche now when you when you think about russia but i did i did they were the first ones that well, I, what, well, uh, I assume what uh uh, Tolstoy is, is one. Karenina. Yes, Anna Karenina, definitely, definitely. In fact, probably the top, the top one and my favorite novel of, of all time. My daughter, by the way, she got forced to read that when she was about 16 or 17, and she hated it because the oh, woman dear. really got on her nerves, but maybe she's just an intolerant young lady. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree that the characters are not especially likable in that book. That that was if you're if you're looking for characters that are very cozy and that you can very effortlessly root for. I'm not sure that that Anna Karenina is, is the book for you. So I can I can empathize. And are there other 19th or 20th century Russian writers, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, um, um, others who who are particular favorites of yours who inspired you, maybe not with this novel, but to become a writer? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, you know, in, in terms of this novel, I think Pasternak's Dr. Shivago was obviously right. a big, I mean, it big, definitely comes to influence. mind because of the epic love or the way your marketing is written. It, it suggests that this is the next coming of Dr. Shivago for better or worse. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I was, I, I also really have enjoyed uh, reading a lot of dissident Soviet writing from the late Soviet period, obviously. Um, Solzhenitsyn is, is probably the most, the most famous of those. There's also Life and Fate. What is, who is the writer? Russell. Yes, exactly. Um, and... Um, Darkov, I assume, as well. Master Margarita. Yes, yes, not not actually really one of my favorites, but definitely a very very interesting one. Um, so that's that's something that I've really enjoyed, and you know I I really have a soft spot for Russian poetry. Obviously, there's some that appears in the novel. You get a few lines. Mm. I included one of um, one of the most famous famous poems by Pushkin, but there there's a lot out there, especially. Are there any real people in the book? I mean. I uh, Russian poets in particular, and uh, and I'm gonna 
I'm going to ruin her last name, Achmanatova. There are no real life figures in the book. Oh, um, no, no, there are none. I, <laughs> I got confused for a second. I think there's there's definitely real life figures mentioned, but they never, they have no lines of dialogue. They are not characters in the book. And finally, uh, Kristen, I have to ask this because some of the people listening will be on lit. Have any advice on first for, for first-time novelists? Everyone wants to do what you've done, get a two-book deal, big-time book, probably get made into a movie. Now you're an international <laughs> star. It's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. It requires enormous amount of work. Many are called, fewer are chosen. What did you do you think that you got right? You obviously have a great deal of talent. You know your subject. Any other tips? Well, I think you can expect it to be drudgery. You can expect it to be very, very hard, difficult, annoying work during which you will feel a lot of pain. If you are ready to feel bad feelings, then I think you will have a major advantage over a lot of people who are trying to to write. You know, kind of the willingness to to push through those feelings is as difficult as the writing itself. So maybe spend a bit of time imagining living in Russia in the 1930s when you uh, tried to write a novel. I have not done that. <laughs> But, but yeah, it's, it's, being a writer is, is, a, is a painful process.